Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. I'll begin with a story of a man who needed, that's the right one. There's a man who needed to cut down some trees near the back of his property, and he went to the store and asked for the most effective and efficient tool to do the job. And so the employee at the store suggested that he buy a top-of-the-line chainsaw that could cut down about 45 average-sized trees in just over an hour. So this convinced the man, and he bought the chainsaw, and he went home and began to work. However, five days later, he came back to the store, demanding his money back, complaining that he was only able to chop down two very small trees in those five days. And so the employee was a little baffled, and he inspected the chainsaw, and he said, I'm not really seeing anything wrong with it. Let's, let's see how it runs. And upon starting the chainsaw, the man who purchased it jumped back startled and said, what's that noise? <laughs> so he was trying to cut it. Here's the lesson. You should know how something operates and know what it's supposed to do before you conclude that it doesn't work. And that's true of Christianity as well. You know, I think we've probably all had conversations with people who have claimed to have tried Christianity or claimed to have tried Jesus and said that it didn't work. But here's the question. Didn't work for what? What were you expecting Jesus to do? And how do you suppose that Christianity works? You see, I suspect that people who have explored Christianity and have investigated the claims of Jesus and found them lacking have had very wrong expectations about Jesus and Christianity. Now, some of this, of course, could be caused by the church's own false advertising. These claims that we make by becoming a Christian somehow leads to a life of ease or prosperity or wealth or happiness, all of which can be really misleading and can be actually challenged by specific passages of the scriptures. So how about you though? Do you sometimes wonder if Christianity works? Do you sometimes question if Christianity has worked for you? And do you sometimes feel that maybe Jesus has failed to meet your expectations? Well, we all need to be really clear about what Christianity offers and what Jesus delivers, a kind of clarity that Jesus aims to provide in John chapter six, where we see our Savior offering the bread of life to a hungry crowd. Okay, so we're gonna look at John chapter six this morning. A little bit of background, John chapter six begins with Jesus miraculously feeding 5,000 people. Actually, more than 5,000 people, 5,000 men, not including women and children. And what makes this so miraculous is he fed all these people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. And then when the evening comes, the disciples and Jesus, they leave the crowd, cross over to the other side of the lake. Jesus goes up on a mountain and then he walks to the disciples out on the lake, on the water, to meet them there in the midst of a storm. And then they arrive at the other side of the lake together. And then John picks up in the next morning in verse 22. So we're gonna begin our reading there in John chapter six, verse 22 this morning and read through verse 35. So that's our text this morning. John chapter six, 
beginning in verse 22 and reading through verse 35. If you have your Bibles, you can open them there. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to locate a Bible in one of the chairs in front of you, and the text can be found on page 520 of those Bibles this morning. So let's stand for the reading of God's word, beginning in John chapter 6, verse 22, and reading through 35. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Did we locate a clicker? Okay, thanks Paul. Well, in this passage, we see Jesus directing the crowd and therefore directing us to bread of life. But he does this in three stages. First, Jesus refuses. He refuses in verses 22 through 26. And then Jesus redirects in verses 27 through 32. And then finally, Jesus reveals in verses 33 through 35. So those are the stages. Jesus refuses, Jesus redirects, and Jesus reveals, beginning with Jesus refuses in verses 22 through 26. When the crowd that had been fed discovers in the morning that Jesus and his disciples aren't there, they get into boats and begin to cross over onto the other side, seeking Jesus, according to verse 24. They are seeking Jesus. And this should alert us to the fact that there's a wrong way to seek Jesus. Jesus. Now, of course, when they get to the other side and these seekers find him, they're confused about when he got there because he didn't get into a boat. And so they ask him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And notice that Jesus completely ignores this question and begins to address their motives in verse 26. There he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, yesterday, You had your bellies filled. They ate their fill according to verse 12. We look back in John chapter six after this meal. Remember, a bunch of basketfuls of leftovers were picked up. So they had their fill and now it's morning time, it's breakfast, they're hungry again and they're seeking Jesus. 
so he can fill their tummies again. Mike Horton interprets the words that are given by Jesus to this crowd in this way. You are not converts, but customers. You're seeking me not because you're converts, but because you're customers. You're like stray cats that follow, not out of any attachment to a new owner, but because they remember who fed them last. Is it not the case that you are only following me because doing so worked for you yesterday? Well, hardly the kind of warm welcome they were hoping for, and definitely not the pancakes that they were expecting from Jesus. And it's because Jesus refuses to be used. Jesus refuses to be used by people, by the crowds, as if he were just some kind of performing magician in a circus who was an easy, convenient, practical, immediate way for the people to get what they wanted. An immediate, easy, practical, convenient way to get what they wanted, as if he's some kind of this ancient initial version of fast food, immediate and convenient. But aren't we all tempted to approach Jesus this way at times? To approach Jesus like he's some kind of genie who grants wishes that we call prayers, and when he doesn't answer those prayers, we conclude that he's not working, that he doesn't work for us. Paul Tripp observes that in the heart of every sinner is a desire that life would be a resort. I think Tripp is right. That our expectation is that life would be a resort. And so Jesus becomes kind of this cosmic bellhop who is just there to get us what we need in order for us to be comfortable and so our stay here can be enjoyed. So we can enjoy our stay here to remove all inconveniences and hassles and aggravations of life and for us to be pampered. So often that's our expectation. I know that's a crude and blunt way of putting it. Jesus is a cosmic bellhop, but isn't there something of that in our hearts? I mean, think about how often do we live life as if the aim is to enlist Jesus for the purposes of building our kingdom and doing our will, rather than seeing ourselves as his servants enlisted by him to build his kingdom and to do his will. You don't think you do that very often? Let me ask you a question. How often do your prayers begin with a concern for the hallowing of God's name, the building of his kingdom, and the doing of his will? And how often do your prayers center on begin with and and hardly ever move from concerns of our daily bread, our earthly needs. But Jesus refuses to cater to these kinds of consumeristic demands. He refuses to be used, but Jesus also refuses to cater to our flesh. Again, not that there's anything wrong with asking for physical food. Jesus teaches us to do that in the Lord's Prayer. He doesn't teach us to start there because it's folly to believe that physical food is ultimate as if true and abiding life is to be found there in physical food and it's utter folly and sinfulness to regard Jesus merely as a means to satisfy the desires of our flesh. So Jesus in refusing to cater to our flesh he doesn't always do what we ask him to do. And so we can conclude that he doesn't work if that's our expectation. He doesn't do everything that we ask him. 
to do. He refuses to cater to our flesh. I think about this. Did Jesus work for John the Baptist who was imprisoned and beheaded? Did Jesus work for the Apostle Paul who suffered greatly? Did Jesus work for Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was executed by the Nazis in a concentration camp? Well, that depends on what your expectations are and what you think Jesus is offering. But friends, let's be clear about this. Jesus has never promised us a trouble-free life on this side of glory. He's never offered you or promised you a trouble-free marriage, a trouble-free family, a trouble-free job, trouble-free relationships. So can we stop with the false advertising and stop telling ourselves this and stop telling other people this, that somehow that's what Christianity is about and that's what Jesus offers, a resort he doesn't. In fact, later in John chapter 16, this very gospel, in chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. It doesn't get any plainer than that. Jesus isn't making misleading or empty campaign promises that he's not gonna keep. He doesn't do that. In this world, you will have trouble. But Jesus refuses to cater to the desires of our flesh he refuses to cater to the desires of your flesh because he loves you. Because he knows that those things are not what's gonna fill your heart. Your heart isn't designed to be filled with those things. And so trouble isn't an indication that Jesus doesn't work. That's not an indication that Jesus doesn't work. But what's the draw to Christianity and Jesus then? Jesus doesn't promise an easy life. What's the draw? He doesn't promise an easy life, but he does promise a better life. As long as we're not confusing better with easy. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. Better and easy are not synonyms. Think of some of the best things in your life and ask if they're easy. They're not synonyms. Better doesn't mean easier, but more fundamentally than offering us a better life, Jesus offers us Life, that's the draw. He offers us true, abiding life, death-defying, grave-conquering, glory-inheriting, everlasting life. And so he not only refuses, but Jesus redirects in verses 27 through 32. Jesus redirects the attention of this crowd away from their physical appetite to the things of eternity, he draws their attention to eternal things and he draws our attention to eternal things. Look what he says in verse 27. Do not labor for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. He draws a very clear contrast between that which perishes and that which endures to eternal life to redirect their focus. And this redirection is necessary because the people who had been fed the day before have failed to perceive the sign of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. They didn't get the sign. It's interesting how throughout his gospel, John prefers to call Jesus' miracles signs. He calls them signs because signs point to something else. Jesus' miracles were appointed, were appointed to point to something else. And the feeding of the 5,000 was intended to point to a deeper spiritual truth about the source of life. 
But the crowd was missing it. They were focused on physical food and material blessings. Just like you and I are often focused on the physical and material blessings and we miss the deeper spiritual reality about the source of life and the giver of life. We're focused on the things of earth as if life is found in those things. That life consists in in more of this, more money, a bigger house, a better car, nicer clothes, or that life consists in if I had that, if I had a more satisfying job, if I had better health, if I had more money, if I had a spouse, if I had a happier marriage, if I had better behaved children, as if life consists and is found in the gifts rather than the giver. That's what we're prone so often to think. We miss it too. And this reference to laboring for food, not that perishes, but that endures for eternal life, prompts this crowd to ask, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And so he directs them further away from human achievement and merit, and he redirects them to grace. He redirects them to grace because life is not a goal that we achieve. Life is a gift that we receive. Life is a gift that we receive by grace through faith. That's true of spiritual life, but it's true of physical life as well. We didn't labor to be born. It's not something we achieved, and we don't achieve spiritual life either. Life is not a goal that we achieve. It's a gift that we receive by grace. Jesus already implied this in verse 27. He says, don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And he says, which the Son of Man will give to you. He's going to give that. But it becomes even clearer when Jesus answers their question in verse 28. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. God is calling us to faith to believe. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't answer their question by saying, this is what you have to do to do the work of God. He says, this is the work of God that you believe. Later in this very chapter, specifically in verse 44, Jesus conveys that faith itself, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ itself is a gift from the hand of God. And so, obtaining the food that endures to eternal life is not something we earn. It's not something we merit. It's something that we receive as a gift by faith. Then they ask in verse 30, why should we believe what you say? What sign are you going to perform that we can believe what you say? And their focus is still on their appetite. It's still on their empty bellies because they bring up this. How about extraordinary food like Moses gave. How about doing that as a sign? Not the ordinary bread we got yesterday, but extraordinary bread. But Jesus redirects them past Moses and past that bread to something even more extraordinary in verse 32. You want bread from heaven? Jesus says, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. And then he ultimately redirects them to himself. He redirects them to himself. Listen to what he says in verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of God is not just a thing. 
it's a person. It's a person. Yeah. Yeah, we want this. Give us this bread always, they say. Verse 34. And then here it is. In verse 35. The first of the seven I am statements in John's gospel. The reality that the sign the day before the feeding of the 5,000 was intended to point to. We get it right here in verse 35. I am the bread of life. This is what Jesus reveals in verse 35. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus points the crowd and us to himself as the true bread from heaven that satisfies the hunger residing in every human heart. That's what he's saying. Your hunger is satisfied by me. Physical bread may fill your tummies, but only Jesus can fill the hunger of our hearts and our souls. And the reality is, we're all hungry. We're all spiritually hungry. We're all hungry for something deep and true and meaningful and lasting and transcendent. And by identifying himself as the most basic staple of the people's diet at that region at that time, he's not just making a pro-carb statement. By identifying himself as the most basic staple, Jesus reveals himself as that which we can't do without. He is that which we can't do without for life. He is that which is necessary for life. To partake of him by faith daily is sustenance for life and for growth. Jesus is life. That's the declaration. Not the things that we can get from him, but him. Jesus is life. And to live is to know him as Savior and Lord and the bread of life. Left to ourselves, we remain empty, hungry, and thirsty spiritually. But Jesus is the answer to the world's spiritual hunger and the world's spiritual thirst. And only Jesus is the answer to the world's spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis writes in the book, The Silver Chair, about this encounter between a young girl who's very thirsty named Jill and Aslan, the great lion, by a stream. Aslan is generally regarded as this representative in the book of Jesus himself. And this is how the encounter goes. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. For your spiritual hunger and your spiritual thirst you must come to Jesus or die. Jesus is life. To live is to know him as Lord and Savior and the bread of life who says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger 
and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. You see, every gift that we get from his hand is to point us to the deeper spiritual reality of him as the source and giver of life. Jonathan Edwards reminds us of this in this quote. Edwards writes, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Fathers and mothers, husbands and wives or children or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. But God is the sun. These are but streams. But God is the ocean. But aren't we slow to learn this? Don't we often mistake the stream for the ocean? Don't we often settle for the beam instead of the sun when God is offering us himself for life? And we're so slow to learn this that God is constantly at work in our hearts. And isn't the work he's often doing in our hearts and lives exactly what we've been talking about here this morning? How he is graciously drawing us to him. Isn't he refusing to cater to the demands of our flesh? And doesn't he redirect our hearts to eternal things and lasting things and to his grace and to himself and reveal himself as that alone which can fill our hearts? Isn't that the work that he's doing in our hearts by his spirit? He's refusing, he's redirecting, and he's revealing himself. So I ask you this morning, what are you seeking? What are you seeking to fill your heart What are your expectations? Why are you here this morning? If it's so that Jesus will satisfy the desires of your flesh, if it's in the hopes that Jesus will give you an easy life to make your life a resort, you will likely be disappointed and conclude that this Christian stuff doesn't work. But if you've come this morning desiring the food that endures to eternal life, Jesus offers you himself as the bread of life. If you've come seeking Jesus, not the gifts that he can provide, but him, if you've come seeking more of Jesus to fill your heart, then you can know the satisfaction, the assurance of the forgiveness of your sins. You can receive his perfect righteousness to stand accepted before your creator and your father in heaven. You can know the promise of a trouble-free life to come in glory eternally with him. But you can receive him. He offers himself to you as the bread of life. And you can discover that he is enough to fill your heart and he is enough to satisfy the longings of your soul. So let's turn to him. We're gonna sing about that in just a second, that he is enough, but let's pray. Our God in heaven, we, we thank you for sending Jesus, bread of life, to us. Lord, we are hungry. We are thirsty. We are empty if left to ourselves. But we thank you that in your love and your grace, you have sent your son that we may be filled in him. Lord, may we be grateful for all the gifts that come from your hand, but may we seek satisfaction and fulfillment, not in your gifts, but in you and who you are for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.